Hi everyone. On Agiprop interviews, I've been meaning to reach out to some of my LGBT inspirations and icons that I remember growing up. And one of those people was definitely the amazing Coco Peru. Now, Coco Peru is a legendary drag queen. Um, I guess that's the term I could use for you guys. But to me, she was a little bit more diversified than just saying drag. She was someone that was an actor. She was someone that was an advocate. She was a host. She was on TV and in films. And I was really, really privileged to have the opportunity to speak to her for this episode. So please check out this interview with Miss Coco Peru and enjoy. So, Miss Coco, you've been a massive inspiration to myself and many others, and I wanted to say thank you so much for taking part in my interview series. Um, so let's start from the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up, first of all, thank you for saying that. I, I, I always have such a hard time taking compliments, so I, as soon as you said I've been a big inspiration, I, you should have seen the big ugly face I made about myself like, but um, <laughs> that's my damage. So thank you for that. I grew up in the Bronx in New York City. Well, if you were to describe the Bronx to anyone that's not from the US, I know a little bit from maybe like J-Lo, but is it what is the Bronx? It's a borough of New York City. Um, and I grew up, when people think of the Bronx, if you're of a certain age, you might even, people think of it as a really bad dangerous place and yes there are sections like that but um i grew up on a little island in the very north part of the bronx that was very nautical lots of sailing little um cute homes so it wasn't the typical picture that people have of the bronx it was a, a, a very small quaint neighborhood that i grew up in okay is it like a mix of various cultures yes of course it's new york city so um yeah, it definitely was a mix. Although I will say it was very, um, at the time I was growing up there, it was very white. Definitely when people think of New York City, they think it's very multicultural, and it is, but there were definite lines drawn as far as who lived where, you know. Um, it's changed, of course, which is good. It's very strange because I've I worked a lot in Los Angeles. I've never gone to New York. I had a stop over there once. And I've never gone. I'm like saving it for some reason in my mind. I feel like there's a the right time for me to go to New York. But it's it's such an interesting place because so many different cultures coalesce and it's kind of like the place where everything is. So I'm always fascinated to hear from people that are from there how um, the different kind of cultures impacted on them. So was yeah. I... I was wondering because Coco Peru, obviously Peru is a country. <laughs> Where did the name come from? Uh, I had a boyfriend years ago named Eduardo, and he was from Peru. We're still friends, and that was my first boyfriend. And it really impacted me. You know, I just never even thought I'd have a boyfriend or that anybody could find me attractive, all this crazy stuff. And... Um, so that relationship was really important to me. And I went to his country to visit, and I met a young guy in a club. And back then, the clubs were very secretive, you know, there. It was a very Catholic, very macho country. Mm. He had a knock on this door, and they would open a little window and decide whether or not I get to be a little gay or they <laughs> knew you. 
and they would let you in. And in that club, I was introduced to a cute boy named Coco, which is a boy's name in Peru. And next thing I know, they introduced that very same boy onto the stage, and he came out as this glamorous, fabulous Las Vegas showgirl look. And I couldn't believe it was the same person. And then I learned that he was very famous in Peru on television, uh, always being interviewed. And I thought, how strange that in a country where you have to knock on a door and everybody's, for the most part, closeted, that they would still celebrate this drag queen on television and fall in love with her. And it got me thinking that having grown up being made fun of for being effeminate, being ashamed of that, being told I would never work, I realized that there is a power in owning 100% of who you are, and not only owning it, but celebrating it and putting it out there in the world, that people will respect that courage, because I saw it there in Peru played out that way. So um, when I came back to New York, I was really affected by the AIDS crisis and seeing what was happening in the gay community, and I wanted to be an activist, I wanted to be an sh- entertainer, and I kind of put it all together and decided to be um, Coco, and then I added the Peru on, just in honor of where I was first inspired. Wow, okay. I I, I didn't realize there was such a um, tribute. Um, such a long answer. <laughs> no, it's fabulous. I'm, I'm super intrigued. Because I read, uh, when I was doing some research for the interview, I noticed that you referred to yourself as Two-Spirit, and... When I was younger, much younger, and I was trying to find some sort of um, descriptor for myself, I couldn't really fit into any of these boxes because I didn't, I didn't attribute what my experience or my version of me was and, until I discovered this word of two-spirit. And obviously two-spirit is common with Indigenous America and, and a lot of cultures maybe in Peru. I didn't know if there was some link between the two. There's a link there. What had happened was I had read a book See, back when I came out, there was no internet, mm. so you had to really. There, it was, it was, it was more difficult, obviously, to find your tribe, and so there were gay bookstores, and um, I would go buy books to sort of learn my history. And one of the books I read was about two, a two spirited person, and that was, and and. I don't want to cultural appropriate, you know, Mm. but my experience was reading that book. It was the first time I ever felt like my experience was validated and being explained that I didn't necessarily feel like either. And yet I felt like both at the same time. And that book just, it was such an, an aha moment for me. And I felt so connected to myself for the first time ever in my life and that I had an anchor, I had something to hold on to that made me feel rooted in my reality. And it really inspired me to create um, Coco where I don't pretend to be a woman, but I'm wearing women's clothes, but I'm talking about being a little boy or you know, telling autobiographical stories. Mm. So um, for me, the two... Uh, you know, to use the term two spirit was always because it was the first time I ever felt connected to myself. I think it's interesting because there's so many cultures around the world that have got this concept of, of two spirit, whether it be called that, but even in like in Papua New Guinea or, or 
pre-colonial African colonies that use this kind of phrase and this terminology to describe it. And I think that it's such a kind of like lost part of our culture. And normally the role of these people were storytellers, were people that not necessarily entertained, but they use dance as a medium to educate. And I think that there's some sort of link there. There definitely is like a lost um, role in the West, if you will. But do you think that that kind of like traditional role plays into your choice to be a performer? When I created Coco, my goal was to be a two-spirit, to to own that 100%. And to see, I had, my, my parents were very worried about me being openly gay on stage um, and were worried that people were going to throw things at me. Uh, they were worried when I walked in the street you know, in full drag in New York City at that time. Um, but I really believed that storytelling was an art that was being lost, and I wanted to reclaim it for myself because I knew that when I told people my story, just friends, um, more often than not, even if they were straight, they could relate to everything I was saying. And I, th I thought, let's take that a step further, be dressed as a woman and have the audience realize it's not about how a person presents or how they identify or what they're wearing. What matters is the universal truths that are being expressed by telling a story. And we realize we have more in common than we do um, if we just look at a person and think, well, I have nothing in common with that person. That's That makes so much sense. Um, did you always was it always about storytelling or did you want to be a general performer because obviously you do a, a range of different amazing things but what did you grow up and learn to be an actor i went to school for acting and when i was very young i was always putting on shows for my parents and their friends um so i always had that hammy side of myself <laughs> yeah and then when i went to college um definitely um fell in love with the whole concept of doing cabaret shows because I was, um, they, in addition to learning theater, we also performed in cabaret shows that were very political. And uh, do you know Jonathan Larson? Yes. Wrote Rent? So he was, he was, had gone to the same college as me. So he was our musical director. Wow. Okay. And, um, so I got to do a couple of these cabaret shows and the, the whole idea of being political and making a point in this sort of body setting was very appealing to me. And I had also seen the movie Victor Victoria, which I credit as being my first gay movie. And that whole setting there was very appealing as well. So um, it all kind of came together. You know, I started doing drag and was being political at a time and talking about AIDS on stage and, um, and just expected that the audience would catch up with me if they didn't, you know, and my mom used to bring her girlfriends from church to see my show. <laughs> um, you know, I think um, definitely the world has changed uh, in, for the better and um, I've lived long enough to see it now. Sure. Um, when did you start conversations with Coco? Like, and when did that become a thing that you you wanted to pursue in a kind of bigger scale? Because obviously over the years it's grown and you've interviewed some incredible people. But what was the kind of idea behind doing conversation? Was it taking that storytelling element and then bringing it to a stage? Yeah, it started off actually where um, I was interviewed by someone. 
And it was just a, a concept to raise money for the LGBT center here in Los, Los Angeles. And then um, it went so well that the center approached me about interviewing um, celebrities to as a fundraiser. And I thought, well, well, I don't know that many celebrities, but I know B. Arthur, and maybe she'll do it. And so B. Arthur was my first um, conversations with Coco. I haven't done them in a while because they were trying to turn it into a TV series. And that's still perhaps in the making, but I don't, it's one of those things where I'm not sure where, you know, Hollywood is so frustrating sometimes. Yeah. Um, especially for queer artists. I mean, it's definitely gotten better, but it's still a, you know, some of the things that I've, that have been said to me over the years just make me slap my head and I think, God, they, they think that's okay to say to me. Mm. Um, uh, where I think you would never say that to anybody else. Uh, but So that's still in the making. So it started off with B. Arthur and it really just started off as a fundraiser. But what I loved about it was, again, the storytelling aspect of it, that where people came expecting something, even the celebrity themselves expected, oh, camp, drag queen, and it turned into a very in-depth, moving uh, evening about their work, but also about their their journey. Who like who was your favorite guest um, that you got to interview? Because you, you were friends with a lot of these people, obviously. But was there anyone that surprised you? Um, no, I, um, <laughs> I I will say I think Jane Fonda. I was very nervous with Jane Fonda because she's like Hollywood royalty, mm-hmm. and I and I didn't know her previously. I only got to work that evening with Jane Fonda because Lily Tomlin is a friend and had done done it. So she asked Jane to do it. And Jane sort of arrived a bit cold, nice, but not, not warm. And uh, I got her on stage and just, and then of course, you know, you put someone like that in front of a few hundred LGBT people and they just feel the love. And she, after about 15 minutes, she kind of melted into it. And then, then we were like girlfriends. Yeah. I saw you some know, of the so clips. That of was the- very satisfying to break through with her and not have my insecurities and fears about being accepted overtake the whole evening. You know, I really just thought, you know what, Coco? She's just another person. I've, I'm a survivor. And I'm going to survive this. And I just, I really just like got very centered. So for me, that was a real, um, I was really proud. I also did one with an actress named Karen Black. Do you remember? You don't, you're so young. You don't know who that is. Yeah. And that was really satisfying because I was obsessed with her as a kid. And and people had sort of forgotten about how great she was. And after that evening, people were like I, you know, was basically saying that I had forgotten how important of an actress she was, and afterwards, her daughter, I heard her daughter say to her, her mom, "I'm so glad you did this, mom," because I felt like, and and Karen died shortly thereafter, so I'm I'm glad that I got to have that experience with her and give that to her. How and I, I've done Alice and Janet, and the other great one was I, I loved working with with Liza Minnelli because I I knew her as a friend 
And I wanted the audience to see the Liza that I knew and not the Liza that they see on television, who can be sometimes kooky and uh, high energy. But when you get to know her as a person, she's actually really intelligent, very thoughtful, thinks about her answers because she has time. Whereas on television, she gets kind of frenzied because you've got four minutes to say what you got to say. And giving her as much time as she needed to answer a question, I think the audience really got to see how... um, how kind of uh, wise and intelligent she is. That's so interesting because there's a um, TMZ clip of Liza where she she kind of is like playing, I think they, they ask her if she can still sing and she kind of like very quick and very wittily implies that they didn't help her into the car and they were kind of being a nuisance, but she was so kind of like classy and thankful that the people doing it didn't know. <laughs> You know, she really inspired me years ago because I, I, people would come up all the time if we were out for dinner or wherever we were and ask her for an autograph. And she was always kind to people, even when she refused an autograph, because sometimes <laughs> she would just explain to them, listen, I'm with friends and I really, you know, she did it in such a way that, um, or she would ask them to maybe come back later when she was finished with dinner and just always classy that way and um sometimes i'm working with these rue girls and they just make such a fuss about their fans being so annoying and and i think oh my god you're lucky you had this opportunity and that you have fans and i sometimes tell them you know liza minnelli was a lot more famous than you and had probably a lot more talent and she treated her fans like gold but that's just me. I'm I think that, school. no, that's so true. It's the reality um, phenomena has changed what fame is. I think like it's a lot less impactful now and a quicker thing. So like when people get that moment, they don't appreciate it. Right. They haven't um, paid their dues or they haven't even developed necessarily a craft. You know, that they're, and then they're sort of scrambling to, put together a show once the, uh, the, the show is over but um well it is what it is and I, i've certainly benefited from rupaul's drag race being on television it's opened up drag in a way that i always thought was possible you know do you think that the rupaul drag race thing has been a positive thing because i remember when i first started to um i, I was a huge 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 fan of matthew anderson and zaldi who did obviously Rue's hair and makeup and dresses and things. And Matthew was like a a heavy promoter of my um, makeup work when I was a teenager going into my early 20s. So when I had this big moment on YouTube when I was doing the makeup thing, it was heavily about, it was kind of a tribute to Matthew. And I was interested in in Drag Race to see what kind of madness he was involved with more so than the show, because I do love drag. And I think drag is such such an umbrella term for so many different things. But because I'm not a performer, Former and I, I don't do anything on a stage. For me, it was like there was a disconnect to the the nature of the show, and I think that um, the when contestants do go on the telly and they get put through these strange tasks, whether it be impersonating people, it's like it doesn't represent like how you can make money after the show. Like, do you think that the Drag Race as a TV show has kind of represented what drag or successful drag is, or like what do you think of it? I think it's a game show. Mm. 
And, uh, you know, I can sit and watch it and enjoy uh, it for what it is um, and not have huge expectations of people, you know, on the, on the show. I know queens that are on the show that are super talented, but they, they were super talented before they even went on that show. Mm. Um, so, I mean, it is what it is. I, what I find fascinating is the, the fans who are um, so invested in, in it and take it so seriously where they're actually um, mean. Yes. <laughs> I can't believe it. And, you know, years ago, my friend um, was one of the Kelly Mansell had been uh, booted off the show, the first one, and she released a video the following day, a music video, the day after she was booted off. And she asked me to post the video. So I did. And I happened to mention that I was so sad that the rest of the world wasn't going to experience the talented queen that I know personally. and whatnot. Well, people in Europe and across the world attacked me for not putting a spoiler alert. And, um, and, but, but we're really mean about it. And, yes. <laughs> and I, I had to remind them, like, there's bigger things in the world for you to be upset about than a drag game show. <laughs> you know? so I think that's what's um, so funny to me is how serious um, sometimes these people take it. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, and I've, I've had to be very careful with what I say um, about the show and about the queens on it. For that reason, because I have been, um, you know, my words have been twisted or whatever, and it's just silly to me, um, you know. And and so I think you, your question is: has it has it been a good thing, or has it? You know, people always ask me: is it RuPaul's Drag Race a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it is what it is, and I have certainly, like I said, benefit benefited from it. I love um, when I go to DragCon the. I love seeing, you know, families coming with their young kids in drag and the parents sometimes dress up in drag and straight dads are bringing their kids to meet me. And I, I find that really moving. And um, it's what, how I always envisioned the world to be. Yes. Um, now, I also believe we've made celebrities out of people that, you know, sometimes my soul gets a little crushed when I've worked so hard writing a show, making tracks to sing along to, um, you know, spend months editing and writing. And and then, you know, I see the line for a Rue girl who's going to lip sync two songs and she's getting paid three times the amount I'm getting paid. I think, mm -hmm. oh dear. But that's the power of television. And, you know, at the end of the day, I always say, I have been in this business for now 30 years. I have survived. People still want to see me. I really don't have much to complain about. So I think you can you can see it as a good thing, a bad thing. You can see it however you want. I, I, I choose to just, it is what it is. And I enjoy it for what it is. It's a funny like phenomenon with the fans because they almost collect um, the 
pictures with the Rue girls almost like Pokemon. Like, I always think it's like a playing like the video games, the Pokemon, where you have to catch them all. Because it's not like they, I think that they think or the audience thinks that if they take a picture, they'll get likes. So it's not necessarily that they're supportive of the Rue girls themselves, like in a long term thing. It's like, well, if I get that picture, I'm going to get some of that thing from me. And, and actually, some of the girls that I've worked with who have been on the show, that is one of the things they complain about. Because obviously, you know, they're doing drag because they love drag. They're doing, um, they want to reach more people. They believe in their art. Um, you know, they have their own journey. And one of their big complaints when they're out on the road doing shows is that sometimes the people start lining up for the meet and greet before their show is even over. Yes. <laughs> And, you know, Shangela tells a great story about the night she broke her leg on stage and the, you know, the ambulance kind of, they pick her up and they're wheeling her out on a stretcher and people are leaning into her to get a selfie. <laughs> and she is, you know, on the way to the hospital to get her leg mended. And what's important to them is not to, to, to be concerned for her health and what, how she looks in that moment, but to get a selfie that they can post. So yes, you're right. So that they can get the likes. It's, they rather her drop dead with a picture it's than a death absurd. drop. <laughs> Crazy. Did you have any major um, drag inspirations when you started? Was there anyone that was that stood out to you? Yes, it was um, Charles Bush. Okay. And he, um, I went with my boyfriend Eduardo at the time. Now, I wasn't, um, I was actually at that time probably a little scared of drag queens because I had, like I said, I'd been trained in the theater and the one note I was always getting was to butch up. So drag sort of represented everything I was um, su not supposed to be, you know. But I went to see this theater show with Charles Bush and his sidekick uh, is an actress by the name of Julie Halston. So the other thing I was always told was to lose my Bronx accent. <laughs> so here I was watching this man dressed as a woman playing the female lead with his sidekick, Julie Halston, who has the thickest Bronx, uh, New York accent. She's from Long Island. And I thought, this speaks to me. It was so funny. And at the time, Eduardo turned to me and he whispered, you could do this. And I remember being a little bit ashamed that he thought that, but um, that's what got me thinking about drag being something bigger than what I had imagined it to be and owning that feminine part of me, that New Yorker in me and not trying to be anything but who I am. Oh, wow. That, well, it would be crazy. I couldn't imagine Coco Peru without Coco Peru's voice. <laughs> By the way, one of the greatest reviews I ever got was uh, they said uh, Coco Peru is the love child of Charles Bush and Julie Halston. <laughs> well, and they've become good friends of mine. So it's that's you know that's what I always try to tell young people is that um, you know it was everything I had been taught to hate about myself and all those fears uh, they were the key to my joy and I've met so many of the people in my life that inspired me and if I hadn't created Coco and taken that leap of faith which at that time was actually a little bit scary to me 
Uh, but if I hadn't done that, none of this would have happened, and none of probably none of these people would have crossed my my path. When when you started to develop the kind of like look of Coco, did you go against the grain? Because I know at the at the similar time period you started, there was a lot of kind of exaggerated drag, like almost clownish kind of aesthetics where everything was like super over the top wig, super over the top makeup. Whereas you've got a very signature look that hasn't changed super, nor does it need to. Yeah. I am. It definitely was a conscious choice. I wanted to set myself apart from everyone else that I saw in New York. So I decided that Coco was going to be less is more. I also loved Klaus Nami at that time. And Klaus Nami always had a silhouette. And I was obsessed with silhouettes from when I was a kid. Um, I loved, I've talked about this in other interviews, but I loved like Barbara Streisand's album where she's in silhouette and just like her nose is just so beautiful to me. And that was the one thing that people always made fun of Barbara Streisand. And I thought she doesn't give a shit. She's owning that. <laughs> like, I think I didn't understand that at the time, but I, I remember I loved looking at that photo. And so these silhouettes, so I decided Coco needed a silhouette. And I loved when the spotlight would hit me, the shadow that was created behind me was just as important as what the audience saw in front of them. Um, So I had a different wig when I first started Coco. It was much bigger, still compared to others, it wasn't. It was very uh, Anne Margaret kind of wig. And then... I um, a friend of my niece's was doing it, and I uh, I never paid him. Every time I went to his salon, I could see him kind of roll his eyes, like "Oh God, she's back." <laughs> and I realized, <laughs> realized I've got to I've got to find another solution. And that's how I came up with the, just the basic flip. Was it was simply something that I could do on my own and take care of. And I always loved the um, the TV show That Girl. I loved the silhouette of the, that flip. That was the logo from the show. Okay. And so it was perfect. I just thought this is perfect. It's something I can take care of and do on my own. And I just loved the way it looked on me. I think, and now when I'm trying to change it, people literally go crazy. I can imagine because you, you're so signature. <laughs> That's why last week I made a little... um videos defending i wasn't defending aiden zane necessarily i was it was defending the right to wear one wig because people again were writing such mean things and i just was reminding people listen i've worn one wig for years and i've had a great career um and and people had mostly good responses there were a couple of people that were not happy with what i had to say (laughs) the drag race audience is just crazy they're just completely completely crazy (laughs) um i was intrigued actually because when when you kind of think about that like i definitely know the strength of like a signature look and i actually it when i started to do my youtube work i i actually consciously chose not to look the same so everything i put out there was a different image and i because I, I i knew that whatever i would do if i was going to get any kind of like shine on my work it would be outside of my control because i'm lgbt and i live my life like in girl mode most of the time so i waited until i had enough kind of like power power so to speak so i could control my own narrative which is only just a, a, like a year of of being able to put my own press out which wasn't sensational um but 
when you created Coco and you created this signature style that had such a thing, were you like aware of the marketing thing? Because I also know like when you were getting um, buzz around your shows, you would spray paint She Knows and, and you would do a lot of your own like kind of PR, I guess you would say for your show. So as like a marketing thing, like within the business of what you do, has that always been like very important to you? I guess so. Although I don't think I was like 100% conscious of it. I think it just came naturally the way I grew up. I, I mean, there was a reason why I was obsessed with certain things growing up. Um, based, you know, I loved that Liza Minnelli had a signature look. It was something that I think when she changed it for a role, I was, I was sort of like, mm, that's not right. I mean, it was right for the role, but for my needs... I needed Liza to look like Liza, you know. When people joked about Barbara Streisand to get a nose job, for me that was like unquestionable because I loved the look. Um, so I think that just was something I grew up with. And, you know, back then, there, you know, you're so blessed to have internet. When, I, Like I said, I could stare at a album cover and listen to an entire album looking at the details of just one photo. You know, I could get so lost in it. So I think as I created Coco, I, that is just sort of was part of how I, my brain worked. Um, so there were conscious choices of less jewelry, less everything, you know, not over-the-top makeup. Nowadays, the, the younger kids, they write every now and then. It's not a big thing. I have to say I'm very lucky that I don't get uh, more attacks Young kids that think they're experts on drag, right? Yeah, she's not a drag queen. She doesn't know how to do makeup. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, that is true on some level. Makeup, and I admire you so much because you are an artist. Oh, thank makeup you. Makeup is, is not my art. It's not something that comes naturally to me. I have difficult with it. But I, I put together a look based on what I was capable of doing, and I'm proud of that. And and it is my signature look. And that is how I express myself in drag. And that's what I think needs to be celebrated. Drag is about expressing yourself however you want the world to see you and celebrating you. So there was, when I was in New York, there was beautiful drag queens, uh, these Latin girls that were just, you know, also there were trans girls. We didn't, we worked together. There wasn't this like, oh, there's the trans world and here's the drag queens. We were we were working together. Mm. Um, and then you have boys. You know, there were club kids wearing makeup that were like boy drag. And so I, I just, I think drag, that's the beauty of drag is that you get to be expressed however you want to be. And that's why yourself, you know, painting your face and, and it was wonderful that it's evolved into where you can be on online being celebrated from your home. Yes. Amazing. I had to cart my ass out every night walking around the city to promote myself. Yes, yes. I, I'm such a I'm such an introvert. I wouldn't been able to get myself out there at all in other circumstances. <laughs> Not at all. Um, there, I also read that when you were starting to kind of like build your own shows, that you would use your boy name to kind of like have the show and then you'd be booking yourself as Coco Peru so no one could like sort of like tell it was your own kind of creation because it was under two names. It was such a, 
it was, you know, I don't know where I got it from, but <laughs> I, I created a, I mean, there was never a really, there was never a production company, but I called it, my last name was, is Loop. So I called it Loop de Loop Productions, right? Mm. And then I would send out letters inviting all of these different gay organizations or other performers and whatnot, saying that we were representing this young performer that's up and coming and going to be, and I would sign it from me, but it was the same person yes. as me, just <laughs> pretending to be, you know, two people. That's genius. Oh, God, when I think of what I went through <laughs> and probably all the money I wasted. <laughs> so do, do you think there's like any advice to make a career last as long as yours? Is there anything that you think people could learn or think about differently? I definitely think not copying other people. I think you can be inspired by someone, but definitely not to copy. I think you really have to dig deep and find your own way. I, I love um, some of the girls that had already been developing their characters. And uh, like Trixie Mattel, I love that she decided to do her own music um, and not just do what maybe people expected or people what they thought was the right thing for her and um i love where her her career has taken her as far as her music and um but i so i would say you know to, to be authentic i would also say show up on time and be professional respect those that uh you're working with the because they're making you look better and um there is, I find my freedom when I do my shows by being very disciplined. So, you know, sometimes people think, oh, drag is about being free. Well, yeah, but if you want to have a career, you have to be very disciplined. And I would say be very kind to your fans and appreciate them. As corny as that might sound to some people, uh, they do pay your bills. Yes, yes. Um, well, you've conquered like different mediums, whether it be live shows, whether it be in film or TV. Um, I I love you, Ongan and Grace. I think that's fabulous. What do you like? Do you want to do something that you've never done before? Like, is there some area of entertainment that you think ah, that's what I what I see myself doing next? I would love to um, do animation because I don't have a bag. Yeah. <laughs> my feet are really sore now. And um, so I've got to start thinking about how to deal with that. Um, uh, so it, it sounds ridiculous, but I, I realize that um, as I've gotten older, you know, I just am so used to pushing myself. When I think back to when I started of I would take the train with this giant box full of my drag that I had a, tied a rope on either end of it, this long box, and all my drag would be in there laid out, and and then I'd get to the venue, and I'd get ready, I would do my show, then I'd have to take the train all the way back. I mean, I don't know where I got the energy from, because I could never do that now, but <laughs> that's part of being young. But I do notice that as I've gotten older, I'm going to have to start, like recently when I did my show in Philadelphia, I had a meet and greet 
over two nights and I, I said to them, I, I can't, I can't stand anymore. You have to get me a chair. <laughs> so I had to take photos sitting in a chair. Well, I've never had to do that, you know, but I finally broke down and realized, girl, you know, you got to respect where you're at. And my feet have, you know, and I've always wore a sensible heel because of <laughs> I injury. I left like, I look at these girls wearing these heels and doing flips and drops. I think they have no idea what they're in for. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So take care of your bodies. That's the one thing. Definitely. Well, you have done some, some sort of like, um, home filming wouldn't maybe not home filming because you go to supermarkets and do things on your YouTube channel, which is a phenomenon in itself. Um, what inspired you to do the YouTube videos, especially playing Grand Theft Auto, which is one of it my personal totally, favorites? Totally, totally, totally um, not, didn't start out to be anything really. What had happened was I started getting all of these photos from fans saying, Target is selling your wig. Oh. And of course, it wasn't my wig. It was just a Halloween wig that looked just like me. And the girl <laughs> uh, wearing it on the, you know, m the model was even making a face like I made. So my manager said, oh, wait, why don't we make a little video for the fans? Because they're all sending you this photo. Were you looking for it? And that was the first video I ever made. And then that kind of went, got more hits than we ever expected. So my manager said, oh, why don't we do another one? And I said, okay, like, I always thought um, Celestial Seasonings Tension Tamer Tea was just <laughs> funny. And I, um, it was a running theme in my shows where I would always mention it. So if you were a fan of my shows and saw them, you would, it always kind of got thrown in there somewhere. And uh, so I said, why don't we just play on that? And then that one went viral because of Tyler Oakley posting yeah. it. And then that's how it started. And I don't do them nearly as much because I always get kicked out of the stores. <laughs> so I always think, I don't want to get all dressed up and then get kicked out. Uh, but they it, that really has opened up a whole new fan base for me. And that is the miracle of the internet, is the amount of people you can reach. And I'm always embarrassed when people come up to me and say how much they love me and how much I changed their life and all of these beautiful things. And I'm assuming they've seen my one person show. Yes. It's not that it's YouTube. And I think, oh my God, those stupid, silly videos changed your life. Um, but I think what maybe the young people are responding to in those videos, and this is the only thing I can think of is that I am out in the world in full drag, speaking my mind, not caring what anybody thinks of me and sort of just owning my place in the world. And I think maybe that's what inspires young people that might feel, especially young teenage girls who feel so much pressure from society to be a certain way and have a certain look and whatnot. And I'm sort of just blowing through all of that going, no, you get to create exactly whoever you want to be. And that's kind of what's so great about you is that, um, you kind of represent that generation who uh, took YouTube and took your creative art and married them and created created yourself. Yeah. And how, how you choose to be seen. It's funny because I, I, I kind of went to school in girl mode and I, I call it girl mode just to 
find a name for it. But I I entered the contest that Simon Cowell was doing based on America's Got Talent on YouTube and I ended up winning it. And it wasn't through him or any of the judges involved with the contest. It was because they brought in external judges that knew my work before and they, they were the ones that got the final say. And when they chose me as the winner, they basically paid me this large prize money but didn't release it as a press release. So no one actually knows that I won the contest. And when I went to... Um, get like the mainstream sort of agents and all that stuff. They wanted me to look like a boy. So I started to like have to learn to be a boy in the last like three years for the first time because I never really dressed like that. So I kind of had to develop this kind of boy drag. And in doing that, I kind of had to take some time off. And even in the last three years, I would say that it's changed so rapidly that I'm like, oh my God, like even... I find, even though I had like a success with my YouTube stuff and I got to do um, more behind the scenes in cosmetics, it's like, I find it just intimidating to the point now where I'm like, oh my God, I don't even know what I want to do with myself. Like, because I just create different images all the time. But when it comes to like being uh, something in this era of social media, it's so hard to do. So I always look at people like you who have been able to keep this amazing career going for so long and having such impact and giving back and I always think that the thing that keeps me motivated is that even if I want to do something or I am being creative if I can give back to my community in some ways that's that's the string that I will be motivated by so thank you for that inspiration <laughs> thank you and I would just say um I also have those same fears and sometimes I look at other performers or not, not even performers, just people in the public or whatnot. And, and then you start playing, it starts playing in your head and you start thinking other people are more successful or other people are happier or whatever it is. And that's the pitfall of being in social media. And when I go to that ugly place, my husband always asks me the same question. Why did you create Coco? And it puts me right back in line of what my goals originally were. And that was to change the world. And I know that probably sounds corny, but that is, was my main goal. I wanted to change the world. And I wanted to be through entertainment and being um, outspoken. And as soon as I get back to the core of why, why I do what I do, um, that other stuff and that other noise in my head goes away. Mm. So we constantly, if you're in the public eye like that, you constantly have to recenter yourself and get back to the root of why you do what you do. And if it's a love for makeup, it's a love for creating, a love for making people feel liberated through your art, that has to be the bottom line mm -hmm. of which everything mm -hmm. else is built. Because if you start building it on how many likes did I get and how many hits, and yes. da -da -da -da, you can get lost in that. So true, so true. Um, if you, uh, do you have any references that you could give to say to young people, like these are the people you need to look at? Because I think a lot of my generation are still oblivious to some of the icons of our communities. Are there anyone that stands out for research purposes or to give people some direction of where to look? Um, beyond performers, I think there's some wonderful films and documentaries that were made about the AIDS crisis and how out of that um, this amazing swell of activism was built and 
I, I was sort of born out of that activism as well. You know, I, I, I was coming up during that time of this incredible fear and feeling like no one was doing anything for us. And then finally realizing you've got to do it yourself. And I realized that with my own career, that being different, being effeminate, well, no one was going to hire me. No one was going to. So I had to do it myself. So I recommend people looking at and finding books. And, you know, maybe that sounds boring and old school, but really looking at some of the documentaries made about Stonewall and about the gay movement and some of the gay icons that were um, before that came before us. Fantastic. Um, so we're actually going through a bit of a crazy crisis in the world. I, do, I don't know when this podcast will be public because I'll get it sent back from my editor, but we're all in social isolation and quarantine and you're promoting, a, well, you're giving out a YouTube series of your thoughts at the moment. Um, are you, firstly, are you doing okay during the isolation? Like, how is everything going for you? It's just strange to, um, to feel, you know, I definitely had a moment where I survived, um, you know, being bullied growing up. I survived a terrible accident in my teen years, which really um, made me realize that bad things can happen to people. And then when I came out and I was finally ready to express myself, I was hit with this as the whole community was hit with an AIDS crisis. And so sex was all fear-based and, you know, going to get tested and it took three weeks to get your results back. It was just a chaotic time. And, and then nine 11 and, and now this, it just, it, it just feels like constantly the uh, fear gets poked and I have to uh, not let it play too much on my emotional stability. I did have a little breakdown. The other day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was so, re I can laugh about it now, but in the moment it was so, I was so ugly. And, um, and I was I like, it, I just exploded and had a temper tantrum <laughs> and um, ended up smashing my hand and, Ends it up. I thought I broke two fingers. I hit my hands. Oh my so hard god! And then I, 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 I had to laugh later at myself that I let myself go there. And it was because my husband's. I had gone to the to the pharmacy for a cream because my lip is split because it's so dry here in LA. Mm -hmm. And and get this, the, the pharmacist brings it up seven thousand dollars, six hundred and sixty eight dollars and and eighty nine cents. What? Um, $8,000 for a little tube of cream, no bigger than a small toothpaste, right? So, of course, I didn't take it. And the girl looks at me, she goes, I, I said, I thought she rang it up wrong. I said, honey, that's, that, that's impossible. And she, anyway, I left <laughs> her. I was so frustrated because I didn't want to go outside because of, you know, they're telling us to these two weeks to stay indoors. Mm. And I went to go get my, my prescription. And then and my husband asked me to pick up razors. And when I came home, he told me I bought the wrong razors, which was $30. And that's when I lost it. And I what was this bloody cream? Oh, I don't know. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> uh, that's pharmaceutical companies. Oh, that's my enough. God. And that's, that's kind of, I think, what hit me was just how absurd everything is and how the system is so set up against us and 
My president was pulling it a hoax and just everything hit me at once. Yes, I'm not surprised. <laughs> and ended up almost breaking two of my own fingers. And that's my book, girl. You need to calm down. You need a cup of detention chamber tea. Yes, yes. You need to slay that dragon. Yeah. So I think all of us are on this roller coaster ride. And I do hope. And I've, I had a fan yesterday write me that his partner of 10 years, only 39, passed away. I mean, it's just horrible. And another, my old roommate from college, one of his best friends, healthy guy, passed away. Oh. So it gets closer and it, it, it brings back awful memories. And um, I do hope that when this is all over, we're a lot kinder to each other and a lot kinder to the earth. Yes. Because one of my pet peeves is... Just the way I see people treat the earth. And I think you can't, that, that is a reflection of how we treat ourselves on some level. And I understood that from when I was a little kid. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we, I pray that we will come through this with more love and less fear. So you have a digital series on Logo called Madam Coco Knows. Do you have any upcoming um, digital outlets aside from the updates on your YouTube channel at the moment? Is there anything else in the works? No, I just um, am going to have to write a new show because I can feel it bubbling up inside of me. And nothing scares me more than sitting in front of a blank screen knowing that um, I have a show to write. But it's just one of those things. And that's why I tell people, like, people always go, oh, you're so brave, you're so so brave and I'm like I'm not brave I'm terrified most of the time I have so many crazy fears my therapist told me years ago that I will never be normal because I never knew what normal was growing up so I'm just as crazy as everybody else thinks they are what I do is I will book a show sometimes before I even have it written because I think deadlines (laughs) are really important for people and maybe this crisis is a big wake up call as a huge deadline for all of us that, um, you know, bad things can happen at any moment. And if you have hopes and dreams, you better start writing them and getting them done. So that's kind of how I operate. And there is one other project that I'm a part of that I am excited about, but I'm not allowed to talk about it yet. Okay. And I also, I'm one of those people that um, until the contract sign and it's already filmed, I'm not talk. I don't talk about things. No, you have but to get the coins. I do feel, I do feel um, when I get down about what's happening, I, I think I, f- I feel blessed that I, I have something in the works that I have something to look forward to, and that's always important for my um, mental health. Definitely. Well, I will wrap up there, but I wanted to say again, thank you so much for um, speaking to me and being so candid about everything. And I am not the Coco Peru that can do fabulous interviews yet. I'm still learning. So I apologize if I wasn't fabulous. Oh, okay. oh good, good. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And, and just as you're having that fear about being not good enough, I will hang up from you and think, oh my God, did I talk to him? I will have so many self-doubts. <laughs> but that's because... We care. Yes. And we care about our craft and we care about delivering. And and sometimes there's not enough people in this world who care and they don't even think about caring. And sometimes they get more of their rewards because they don't have the fear. Mm. So at this point in my life, 
I'm really, tr so even when I film those Coco thoughts every day, I'm not doing them in drag. It's just me. Uh, it's, uh, I only film it once. I don't give myself the opportunity to do it again because I'm learning to just, it, it can be what it is. And, um, you know, I, and so I, 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 I press play and think, oh God, I hope this goes okay. And, but I just push right forward. So I, I encourage people to, to do that as well. Amazing. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And sending love to you and your husband. Um, and hopefully, thank you, thank you. And if, if once we get over this and we can travel and I'm next in LA, I, I would love to go for lunch or something with you and, and meet in person. For lunch. And um, hopefully, you know, right before this all went down, I was on my way to London and that had to get cancelled. So hopefully I'll get Oh yes. All right then, love. Well, take care, and I will give you an email after this as well. Okay, Joseph. Bye. Bye. So, thank you so much, everyone, for listening to my interview. Um, hopefully, I did a good job, but I was quite nervous, as you can hear. <laughs> Um, please check out all of the links to Agitprop. Check out all of my work going forwards and don't forget to look at the links for all of Coco's amazing work. Please stay safe. Please stay safe during lockdown and I will see you all in the next episode.